Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. At the end of this reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord. Please kindly respond by saying thanks be to God. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now, it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right, but we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Mami Gio, for that, that powerful reading. Yeah. I'm going to get in trouble for that one later. But... Okay. Um, good morning, everyone. Ah, oh, nice. You do better than the first service people. <laughs> Let us pray. Um, Father, we thank you for waking us up this morning, really, for bringing us to church. <clears throat> We thank you for your word that's made available unto us. Lord Jesus, we are here now and we are saying we proclaim you and your mighty power and your awesome majesty. Lord, come upon us now. As you came upon us in the adoration, as you came upon us in congressional prayers, with the confessions, we ask that you come upon us, O oh God. As you came upon us with the reading of your word, with the singing of your word, we ask that you come upon us in the preaching of your word and the receiving of your word. 
Help us not to be here as alone, but do us of your word. Release your power, Jesus, and let your presence fall. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name we pray. All right. Um, in case you're watching me with us for the first time, whether here or online, uh, my name is Tomi Raju. I'm one of the guys on the preaching team. I want us to do something slightly different today in church. Um, I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them compliments of the season. Go ahead. All right. Now look at that other neighbor that you ignored, the second option, and tell them, I'm sorry, compliments of the season to you too. <laughs> All right. So yeah, compliments of the season, everybody. Um, so um, I've not really been a big fan of Christmas. I mean, just growing up. I, I, I get the idea. I understand that. During Christmas, the drinks in the fridge tend to increase. But growing up in the Olaniwaju family, that also meant that that's the period when mommy begins to carry these herbs and she begins to prepare agbo. You know what agbo is? This bitter drink that is meant to neutralize all the sugar our children are about to take. But another reason why I'm not so fond of Christmas seasons is, see, I grew up in Eloring, and Eloring is like um, in the north central part of um, Nigeria. What that means is Amatan there is real Amatan. Alright? Not the kind of Amatan we have here. This one is, this one is still doing freedom, you understand? You think about freedom. But again, the Amatan we have in Ilori is very dusty, very, very dry, and I usually react to that. So I mean, Christmas is not something I, I look forward to. But in preparing for this sermon, again, I need to think about Christmas, firstly. And um, one of the things that amazed me that dropped in my mind was this that how amazing is it that a person was born about 2,000 years ago, until today, one third of the world is still celebrating his birth. I mean, Napoleon said concerning Jesus, he said, I marvel that whereas the ambitious dreams of myself, that's Napoleon, Caesar, and Alexander the Great should have vanished into thin air, a Judean peasant, Jesus should, st- should be able to stretch his hands across the centuries and control the destinies of men and nations. Till today, Jesus is still controlling lives. He's still controlling our own destinies. And we're all here today because Jesus Christ was born and because he reigns as king. Amen. Amen. And if you ask Jesus, or if you ask some of us here, why was Jesus born? You give different reasons. Um, to save us, to redeem us, and so on and so forth. And if you ask Jesus himself that why was he born, he would, probably, he would have given different answers as well. And in the text that is before us today, Jesus gave one of the reasons why he was born. In John chapter 18, verse 37, Jesus said, um, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world, you see, the reason I was born and came, Christmas, into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So Jesus was born to testify to the truth. And I was supposed to ask the next logical question, and that's what Pilate asked in the text, too, in verse 38. He said, what is truth? But for us to understand what truth is, we need to backtrack a little bit. So just a quick background. So Jesus was born, all right, Christmas, and then he grew up, um, he grew up um, to fear the Lord. The Bible says he found favor with God and with man. And around age 30, let's just say he took a career shift. He changed from being a carpenter to a teacher. The problem was this. I mean, look, forget the problem. Jesus was teaching lots of people. His ministry was going really, really well. The problem was the things that Jesus was teaching was actually threatening the teachings of the Pharisees, the teachings of the high priest. The Pharisees in those days 
were those you could call like they were the custodians, custodians of sound theology in those days. The Pharisees felt that if God was going to restore the kingdom to Israel, if God, God, God was going to restore the kingdom of God to Israel, he needed to do it if the people were obeying God's laws. Now, just to backtrack again, what do I mean by restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, in the old covenant, God had picked Israel as his own nation, Israel as a nation where his kingdom is going to be established. But they sinned against God, and God sent the Babylonians, the kingdom of the Babylonians, to conquer them. At that point, the Assyrians conquered them, the Persians conquered them, and now Rome was in charge of, of Israel. And so these people felt that, oh, the kingdom of God is coming, and when that kingdom comes, Israel will no longer be ruled by any other person. So they needed to get their theologies right. People need to obey the law. And, for, and that's the only reason why the kingdom of God was going to come. And in the process, they created what we call like a theological kingdom that they were reigning over. Amen. And you begin to see that just as Pastor taught us in, from John chapter 9 um, last week. And um, Jesus healed a particular man. He was blind and Jesus healed him. And the Pharisees and the high priests called him to the temple and they were questioning him. And they called his parents to testify. His parents were scared to testify. Why? They said that they knew that they testified wrongly. The Pharisees and the high priests had the power to actually send them out of the temple. So this theological kingdom that the Pharisees had actually created, they were kings over them. The things that Jesus was teaching became a threat to the kingdom of the Pharisees, to the theological kingdom that they had already that they had already established. The Pharisees felt that their way was the way through which the kingdom of God was going to come. Jesus came, threatening all of that and saying, your way is not the way. And in John chapter 14, he says what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was threatening their own kingdom. At one particular point, Jesus was teaching and he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they said, I mean, oh, I mean, Abraham is dead. How, how, how would Abraham rejoice, I rejoice to see your day? Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And you should have two problems with that, a logical problem and a theological problem. Now, we in the 21st century will have a logical problem with it. Why? Because before Abraham was, the right thing to say is you were, not you are, right? But the Jews would have had a theological problem with it. You see, the name I am was the name God used to introduce himself to Moses when God was sending Moses to deliver the children of Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. So Jesus was, in court, invoking the name of Yahweh for himself. This was a big problem to the Jews because that means Jesus was claiming to be God. Jesus was threatening their theological kingdom. The Bible says they picked up stones and they wanted to stone him. From that time, they wanted to arrest Jesus so they could, get, so they could do away with him. But they couldn't arrest him publicly. Because some people liked them. They wanted to arrest him privately. And that makes sense. Because even though they didn't agree with the things he was teaching, he was doing good stuff. I don't know about you. No matter how stupid a man can be, if he's multiplying five loaves of bread and two fishes, I'm going to follow him. And that was the way, the way it was then. People were like, I mean, we don't like what you are saying, but you are doing great stuff. You are multiplying food. We're good, right? And so they couldn't arrest Jesus publicly. They needed to arrest him privately. Judas Iscariot then comes, one of the disciples of Jesus, and betrays Jesus and says, oh, I know how you can get him privately. And that's where we are in John chapter 18. In John chapter 18, verse 4, the Bible says, so Judas Iscariot has brought the policemen of the Pharisees, the policemen of the high priest, they want to arrest Jesus now. The Bible says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? This was a threat coming to meet Jesus. Jesus stepped out to meet them and said, who is it you want? 
And something, something, something good really happened here. Um, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. And Jesus said, I am he. And Jesus, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is giving me all these 1990s, 2000 Hollywood vibes. You know, power past power kind of a thing. He just said, I am he, and they just fell down. Again, I don't know about you, but if I was sent to arrest somebody, and I asked him, I'm looking for this person, and he says, I'm the one you're looking for, and something pushed me to the ground. There is no way I'm arresting that guy again. But these guys are braver than we all are. So they still arrest Jesus. They take him to the high priest, and the high priest, and the high priest tries him. The problem was this. Because Israel was under, Roman, or under, under the Roman government at the time, they couldn't execute Jesus. They didn't have the power to kill him. So they told Pilate that, oh, this person is a threat to the Roman government. Is a threat to, in quote, a political kingdom. Right? And so that's why the first question Pilate asked Jesus in verse 34, or I think 33, 33, he said, are you the king of the Jews? This is what he wanted to know. Are you really a threat to this political kingdom? And Jesus answered, he said, is this your own idea or did someone else put you up to it? Pilate said, am I a Jew? What's my business? That's a long story short. Jesus then said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So Jesus has, so Pilate then responds and says, you are a king then. And Jesus then says, um, you say that I'm a king. And in the Greek rendering of this, it's actually more affirmative. He was saying, you are correct in saying that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. What truth? That he was a king over a particular kingdom. That the Pharisees were not in charge of their theological kingdom. That um, Pilate was not in charge of his own kingdom. But that he, Jesus, was king over every kingdom. That Jesus was the true king. And that's why we have titled this sermon, Jesus is King. Jesus is King. And if this resembles any album, you know, um, just, just ignore. Just ignore. All right. So we're examining this under three headings. Jesus and the lost kingdom. Jesus and the regained kingdom. Jesus and the future kingdom. So quickly, Jesus and the lost kingdom. When you read the text, certain things become obvious to you. That all the characters in the story actually didn't have power over the kingdom that they, that they thought they had power over. For example, the Pharisees felt they were kings over their theological kingdom and they wanted to protect it. Yet, when the greatest threat to their kingdom presented itself, they still couldn't exterminate that problem on their own. They needed Pilate. They were not true kings over that particular kingdom. But maybe Pilate himself, since he's under the Roman government, maybe he would have more power. But again, you find that when Pilate asked Jesus, Pilate said, said, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, well, you say that I am. Jesus said, I'm from a different kingdom and so on. In verse, 13, in verse 39, 38 rather, Pilate's conclusion about all this interrogation was this. I find no basis for a charge against him. Jesus was innocent. Jesus did nothing wrong. And Pilate knew it. And the next thing you should probably wonder is, okay, um, set him free, right? He did nothing wrong. If, if at all, just to spite the Pharisees that you don't like, set him free. But he couldn't do any of that. Why? Because he himself didn't have absolute power over that political kingdom. Then we see another person in the story and we've ignored him for a while. He's Barabbas in verse 40. Bible says Barabbas. Now, Barabbas are taking part in an uprising. Now, this sounds really nice. You know, took part in an uprising. Yeah, that sounds so cool. Now, that's not what's going on here. In Luke chapter, Luke chapter 23, verse 19, the Bible says, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. 
So like I said, the Romans were ruling over the Israelites at the time. So what usually happened is sometimes they revolt against the Roman government. And in the process, these people that revolt against them, they are called zealots. They are more like terrorists. Because in the process of revolting against the Roman government, they don't mind killing their own people. And so in a sense, Barabbas was trying to fight for a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel to, in, in quote, get independence. right? So in short, he, was, he sort of was fighting for a social kingdom. So the Pharisees were fighting for a theological kingdom, right? Um, Pilate was fighting for what? A political kingdom. And Barabbas was fighting for a social kingdom. Yet none of these men had true power over their kingdoms. This is actually a story because in a sense, most of all of them have, have either directly or indirectly rejected the kingship of Jesus. This is actually a story of the rejection of the true king leading to dethroned kings a lost kingdom, and then aspiring rulers. I'm going to explain. It's a story of the rejection of the true king leading to dethroned kings, lost kingdoms, and aspiring rulers. People that have lost their kingdoms and are still aspiring to show as if they have control over those particular kingdoms. And this is not the first time this is happening. You can see it with Adam and Eve as well. God told Adam, I've given you dominion. Be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth. Only do not eat of the fruit of this garden. Adam eats of that fruit, and the Bible said he was naked. If he was naked now, and he knew it, now he knew he was naked, that means he had lost something. There was a glory that was covering Adam before. But now, in a sense, he had been derobed. In a sense, he had been dethroned of that kingly garment. He no longer was a king. He had lost the kingdom. And when he perceived a threat to that particular kingdom, and God came to meet him and said, Who asked you to eat of the fruit of, the, of, of this tree? What did he do? It's my wife. He deflected. He was still trying to prove that, oh no, it's not my fault. I deserve to be king over this kingdom. It's not my fault. I still deserve to reign. He was still aspiring to reign. And the way he did that was by lashing out, by deflecting from the truth. But we also find it with Noah as well. Noah was just like Adam. God gave Noah the same command. He said, be fruitful, right? Increase in number, fill the earth. The fear of you will fall on every beast of the field, birds of the sky. And the last phrase in that verse was, they are given into your hands. So Noah also had dominion. But just as Adam ate from the fruit of a tree in a garden, just as Adam did that, Noah also fell because he ate from the fruit of the tree in a particular vineyard, in a garden. And the Bible said he was also found naked. What the Bible was trying to remind you that this person has lost his kingdom just as Adam had lost his own kingdom. And when he perceived a threat to his life, to his own kingdom, when his son laughed at him, what did he do? He cursed him. In a bid to aspire to reign over a kingdom that had already been lost, he lashed out in violence and cursed his own son. But this is also what you find in the story. The Pharisees, when they perceived a threat to their own kingdom, what did they do? They manipulated instead. So they went to meet Pilate and said, Oh no, it's a threat to the, a threat to the Roman government. It's a threat to your political kingdom. Do away with him. But the truth of Jesus wasn't necessarily a threat to, to, to Pilate. They were manipulating. In a bid to aspire to reign over their own kingdom, they ended up manipulating. But you find also with Pilate, Pilate was the one who, after he asked all the questions he wanted to know, are you the king of the Jews? Oh, you are a king then. And then when Jesus then said, oh, I've come to testify of the truth. Pilate then asked, what is the truth? And he go, fam, you know what the truth is? He just told you, you are the king. he is the king over the kingdom. What was Pilate doing? Pilate was deflecting. 
was shying away from the truth. Nebid to aspire to reign over his own kingdom. Pilate was shying away from the truth. But we also find the same with Barabbas as well. We said Barabbas was like a king over a social kingdom. How was he lashing out? In violence. So you find different kings in this story, aspire, different dethroned kings over lost kingdoms, aspiring to reign, and therefore were lashing out in manipulation, lashing out by shying away from the truth, and lashing out by violence. Does this sound familiar to you? What do we do when our own kingdoms are threatened? What do you do when your power is threatened? When your control is threatened? When your comfort is threatened? When your future is threatened? Do you not also lash out in manipulation? Shine away from the truth and sometimes violence. Think about it. Why do we lie? Why do we steal? Why do we sin? It's because we have trusted that Jesus is not in full control of this situation. I need to take control. I need to aspire to reign over this and then make things work together for my own good. Why do we commit sexual immorality? It's because we have rejected the kingship of Jesus in saying that he is the only one that can satisfy us. And he has put boundaries around which sexual intimacy can flourish. You want to go about doing it your own way. You aspire to reign and therefore you shy away from the truth. At the root of every sin is an acknowledgement that God isn't ruling well and we have to take power for ourselves. But as we have read in the text, Jesus is the true king over the political kingdom. Jesus is the true king over the social kingdom. Jesus is the true king over the theological kingdom. Every kingdom you think you have actually doesn't belong to you. Your family doesn't belong to you. Your work doesn't belong to you. Your finances doesn't belong to you. Your own life doesn't belong to you. Jesus is the true king over all these kingdoms. At best, all you can do is to aspire, to perspire, to inspire, until you expire, basically. <laughs> but right there in the text, we see the person who is, in, who is really a true king, who is in control over everything happening around. Just as we read in verse 4 of chapter 18, the Bible says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out to meet them. He wasn't threatened by the threat that was coming. He was in control. We also find in verse 32, the Bible says this took place, everything that has been happening, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. There was nothing happening that day that was outside of Jesus' control. In fact, in a sense, it's okay for the Bible to say, oh, this took place to fulfill the word of the Lord. He said, no, this took place to fulfill the words of Jesus. This guy that was actually in this particular scenario, he's in control. He has said this way is going to happen, and that's the way it's happening. Why? He's in full control of everything around him. Why don't, because Jesus specializes in taking things that seem to be threats to his own kingdom and still using it for his own glory. Why don't you carry your own life, your families, your kingdom of work, the kingdom of your finances, and put it in his hands so that when the threat comes, he can still work everything for his own glory and for your joy. Why did the Bible say in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that um, all things are working together for them, for the good of them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose? You can look at these verses. When the threat comes to your family, when the threat comes to your home, when the threat comes to your children, you can look at the trials of Jesus because she has committed your kingdom into his hands and say Jesus specializes in taking threats to his own kingdom and using it for his own glory. In this same situation, God will take this threat and use it for his glory and for my joy. Somebody said something. He said there is only one role for the king in this kingdom and it has been taken. Stop applying. 
Stop applying with your anger. Stop applying with your manipulation. Stop applying with your lies. Stop applying with violence. Stop applying with your worries. Stop applying. Tell your neighbor, stop applying. Move to the second point, Jesus and the regained kingdom. Jesus and the regained kingdom. So we have seen in the text that these different people aspire to reign over, over different kingdoms. And the thing is, somebody needs to reign over the theological kingdom. Somebody needs to reign over the political kingdom. Somebody needs to reign over the social kingdom. The problem was these people were attempting to reign and rule while rejecting the rule of Jesus over their lives. They were seeking for a world transformation without experiencing the heart transformation. What the Bible teaches us is this, that the only guarantee of regaining the kingdom of, God, the, kingdom of the world from the hands of the devil, from the hands of evil, will be if God has regained his kingdom in our hearts. Why? Because that's where the issue started from in the first place. Remember Adam and Eve? Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, I think verse 6, when Eve saw the fruit, he said she saw that it was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and desirable to make somebody wise. Before she lost the kingdom in the world, she had lost the kingdom in her heart first. Before the devil snatched it from in the world, the devil had already snatched it in her own heart. The kingdom was already lost in her heart before it was lost in the world. It then makes sense that the kingdom is going to be regained in the world. Where should it start from? In our hearts. And so we're going to be talking about regaining the kingdom in our hearts and regaining the kingdom in the world. Regaining the kingdom in our hearts and regaining the kingdom in the world. So first, regaining the kingdom in our hearts. For the kingdom in our hearts to be regained, there are two things we need to learn from, from this story with Pilate. One, you need to let God threaten you. And two, you need to let God rule you. So first of all, you need to let God threaten you. So quick history. From this story, you can see that Pilate is a very, very incompetent man, isn't he? But it's not just in the Bible. Actually, the history books also say that Pilate was a very, very incompetent person. Pilate was the governor over Judea. And what he was supposed to do, all those revolts that Barabbas was a part of, he was supposed to be quenching them. But not just quenching them, he was supposed to keep the people appeased while at the same time keeping the Roman emperor appeased. But Pilate's answer to everything in the past was actually violence. In fact, there was one particular point in the book of Luke. The Bible said, Pilate killed certain men and carried their blood and mixed it with the blood of pigs. It wasn't enough to just kill them. Because they were Jews and they ate pigs, you needed to spite them at the same time. So he was under probation because the Pharisees had written a letter to the emperor and were like, this guy is not doing us well, though. I better change him. Right? So he was under probation. And so in a sense, his kingdom was being threatened. So when they brought Jesus to him, that was all he was concerned about. Is this person going to further, um, further, further threaten my kingdom? Is this person going to, again, threaten my kingdom? And that's why the question he asked Jesus was this. He said, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus then told him, I think that was verse 36. Says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And Pilate is going, oh, we cool then. I mean, it's, the kingdom is of another place. It's not, you're not threatening Rome. You're not a threat to me in any way. But what he missed was this. That the kingdom that Jesus was actually ruling over was a kingdom that threatened every other kingdom. He was so blind by his own kingship. He didn't even see when Jesus was a threat to him. And the question to us is this. When last was Jesus a threat to you? When last was Jesus a threat to your way of thinking? 
When last was Jesus a threat to your kingdom? In short, when last did you have to repent of anything? When last was it that, based on the messages that are coming forth from the pulpit or the things we are discussing in gospel communities when we gather every week to study the Bible or when you are reading your Bible privately, when last did anything come out and actually cause you to say, man, I think I need to change? We are also blinded by our own rulership over this kingdom. We do not see when Jesus is threatening us. When Jesus is calling us to change. Because what God would have us do is to be transformed from one level of glory to the next until we are conformed to the image of the Son. Because it's only those that be conformed to the image of the Son that can change the world. If there is no change in your heart, if there is no change in your life, if Jesus doesn't threaten you enough to cause you to change, you cannot be a part of advancing the kingdom to cause a change in the world. And so, for us to cause change in the world, repentance has to be a lifestyle. Repentance has to be a lifestyle for us. But secondly, let God rule you. Let God rule you. Again, like we discussed, Pilate was trying to ascertain if Jesus was a threat to him. And let's just examine their conversation a little bit. Listen to what Jesus said. My kingdom is not of this world. One, if it were my servant would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And those of us, as we are reading that, we are going, okay, cool. Like, to the Jew listening to this, they would have felt, this is very, very impossible. Why? Because there's only, there's only one other kingdom outside of the kingdom of this world. It's the kingdom of heaven. And God rules over that. A human being cannot rule over it. But, Pilate, but Jesus wasn't talking to a Jew. And he wasn't talking to a Nigerian. He was talking to a Roman. So how would a Roman have viewed this statement? What would he be thinking? You see, in those days, when Rome conquers a particular city or a civilization, what they do is they adopt the kings. They adopt the gods, rather, of those particular people. So one of the people that Rome was, was ruling over was Greece, the Greeks. And the Greeks had great influence in, over, over many people in, in the first century at the time. And if you study the gods of the Greeks well, they are gods. But there are also some, some people you call demigods. Demigods were those that were born as a result of sexual intercourse between a god or a goddess, and a human. And now those people who are demigods, naturally, based on the stories we have, they actually don't threaten human kingdoms. Why? Because they felt that their own reign was in Olympus. Olympus was Greek heaven, all right? <laughs> so they felt that their own reign was in Olympus. So they were not going to threaten anybody. So the moment Pilate saw that, oh, this guy might actually be a demigod. Oh, we're good. No problem. No need to threaten anybody. But Jesus. And so he then responds and says what? He says, oh, you are a king then. So I, I get it. You are, you are, there's, a rule, there's a kingdom you are ruling over. That's good. Do, do you? Right? But Jesus doesn't allow him to end there. He says, you say that I'm a king. You are correct in saying that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify the truth. And Jesus goes for that. He says, everyone on this side of truth listens to me. Pilate, it's not enough for you to conclude that I'm a king. You need to be on my side. Pilate, it's not enough for you to conclude that I'm a king. You need to listen to me. Jesus was going for Pilate and saying, I am not just a ruler somewhere. I want to rule you. But we find in the text that Pilate deflected and said, what is the truth? And then he walks away. He wasn't ready for the answer. Pilate wasn't ready to allow Jesus to rule him. And the question is, are we going to allow Jesus to rule us? It is not enough. For us to admit that Jesus is king over all, if we're not going to wait for him to actually rule over us. It's not enough for you to come to church and say, oh, what is truth? And then before they give the answer that will cause Jesus to rule you, you walk away. It's not enough. 
And one thing we see is this. Because Pilate didn't submit to the rulership of Jesus, he eventually submitted to the rulership of somebody else. Because, because eventually all he did was eventually give in to what the Pharisees wanted. So something we need to learn is this. If you have rejected the kingship of Jesus over your life, you will still bow to the very thing that is out to destroy you. It's right there. He bound to the kingdom of the Pharisees. And these are the people that were out to destroy him. God has created means to rule us in the 21st century. One of the ways he does this is through his word. But another way that is easily neglected is through his church. People that God has placed over us and around us that can constantly threaten us and poke at us and say, see, you are not allowing God to rule you here. But what we love to do is feel as if, oh, we are self-aware. I think I can handle it. No, you cannot. Oh, I think I know what I need. In short, basically what I'm saying is this. You don't know what you need, and you need mentors, one. You need friends who are able to tell you the truth no matter what, that you're not allowing Jesus to rule you. The problem most of the time is that we overestimate ourselves. You see, for anybody to rule over their lives or rule over a particular place, you need two things. You need absolute knowledge. You need to know everything around. I mean, if I see you or something, you need to know everything in the company, sort of. But you also need to have power to be able to do something about in case, in case you see a problem in the company. We usually feel like we have absolute knowledge and absolute ability. The Bible is going to teach that we don't have absolute knowledge. How many times have you done something or said something and once you are done, you'll be like, I can't believe I could still say that kind of a thing. You don't know yourself well enough. Why is it that we constantly need to see therapists to tell us certain things about ourselves that we've not seen? Psychology says that many times it is easier for a stranger to, to see things about you in 10 minutes that you might not see about yourself in 10 years. We don't have absolute knowledge about ourselves. But let's just then assume that you do know certain things you are supposed to do. The Bible is going to teach us that we don't just have a knowledge problem, we have an ability problem. It's not enough for you to know what to do. Most of the things you cannot do it still. I remember the first time I read the motivational book, um, I think I was in just one. And I read it, I was done, I finished, and I was like, these people didn't tell me anything I didn't already know. I mean, for those of you that listen to motivational talks, and that's not bad, there's a place for it. What do you need to succeed? What do you need to be a productive person? Consistency, discipline, determination. When failure comes, do not let it put you down. Rise above it. You didn't know that before, Abby. <laughs> no, think about it, you did. You did. The problem wasn't that you didn't know what you were supposed to do. The problem is that you couldn't do anything about it. How many times were you probably arguing with somebody, somebody you loved, somebody you cared about, and you kept on arguing, and you knew you were about to say something really nasty? You knew it. There's that split second in your mind. You thought about it. This thing is going to hurt this person. You know. But you said it. Why? You couldn't help yourself. We don't just have a knowledge problem. We have an ability problem. And that's the reason why we cannot rule over our lives. That's why Jesus has to rule over us because he doesn't just have, he doesn't have a knowledge problem, he doesn't have an ability problem. He knows all things. As you see in verse 4, in, in, in John 18 verse 4, he said he knew what they were coming to do. And I think by the time you get to verse 32, he actually, everything was going according to his own plan. He could do something about it. Jesus is not incompetent just like we are. So we need to let Jesus threaten us and let Jesus rule us because if he does this, this is the only way we can change the world. But again, how then do we change the world? Regaining the kingdom of the world. You see, as we've discussed in this story, Jesus was the only one that had true control and true power over the kingdoms. And so the question to ask is, how was he using that authority? How was he advancing the kingdom? How was he trying to regain the kingdom? 
I don't know if any of you have heard about this um, idea, the seven mountains of influence. Um, family, religion, education, politics, and that's all I remember, right? <laughs> but you know, you, you, know, you know about, I mean, some of you know about them. Um, art, um, technology, basically aspects of the society, and how Christians are supposed to lead in this aspect. We're supposed to dominate. We're supposed to use the dominion that God has given unto us. We're supposed to exact authority. And I actually think there's a lot of things to learn from this way of thinking. Because indeed, Christians are supposed to engage all these areas. We should engage politics. We should engage education. We should engage um, religion. We should engage for the, the world of family and so on and so forth. But the question remains, how did Jesus advance the kingdom in the world when he was here? Because one thing we cannot do is this. We cannot go about seeking to achieve heavenly goals by earthly means. We cannot go about seeking to achieve heavenly purposes by earthly processes. You find in verse 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. If Jesus was looking for an heavenly kingdom, he couldn't use earthly people for it. Amen. So again, how did Jesus exact his rule? What mindset did he have? What was Jesus thinking? One of the things that immediately comes out at us as we read the text also again, again, he was in control. But he didn't advance the kingdom by actually exerting authority. What he did, he advanced the kingdom by laying down power. He didn't advance the kingdom by thinking world domination. He advanced the kingdom by thinking world service. By laying down his power. You see it all through the trial. He was in full control of everything that was happening. And in fact, at a particular point, the Bible says, Jesus said, I could call legions of angels to come and deliver me, but he will not do any of those. What was he doing? He was laying down his power to actually advance the kingdom. This is what he did in his trial. This is what he did in his incarnation. This is the Christmas story in Philippians chapter 2. Could you project Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 9. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Uh, could you continue? Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. He, rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, let's continue, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus wasn't thinking world domination. Jesus was thinking world service. The story of Christmas is the story of God's advancement of his kingdom through the laying down of power. So when you go back to work next year, what are you thinking about? Are you thinking world domination or are you thinking world service? When you are making those applications and you, are, and you are trying to get a promotion, trying to get a better job, are you thinking world domination or are you thinking world service? When you are writing those professional exams and you are coming up with ideas that are meant to impact the world, are you thinking world domination or are you thinking world service? You see, the era of our fathers, of our fathers, like, like our fathers, well, our fathers. <laughs> I, was trying to, I was almost lost there. Anyways, the errors of our fathers was this. They were so heavenly minded, they became earthly relevant. They didn't engage with all these various aspects of the society. But what many of us think is this. We think we can usher in the kingdom of God upon the earth by creating the best possible life. We want to react against that. So we want to dominate. We want to rule. We can create a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven here. But the problem with that is if you create the best possible life here, what hope do you have when Jesus is coming? What is he coming for? What is he bringing? The Bible says that we've been, we've been called to a living hope. What hope then if you've actually created the best possible life? Here, what we can see is that the way to advance God's kingdom is by service, one. 
But another thing we see is also that Jesus, even though he was advancing the kingdom of God on the earth, he was looking to a future kingdom. He said, my, my kingdom is not of this world. And so in the very same way, we ourselves, why we'll advance God's kingdom here, we should also understand that the only way the kingdom is going to come is if Jesus brings it back. We can do a lot of things, but the future kingdom that is coming will always be better than the kingdom we're ever able to create. And that will lead to the last, to the third point, the future kingdom. The future kingdom. You see, in the story, all of them were looking to a kingdom to come. You find it with the Pharisees as well. The Pharisees were a king over a theological kingdom. And I told you that they were doing this because they wanted the kingdom of God to come back to Israel so Israel can dominate every other kingdom. And so that was the future kingdom they're looking for. Israel as independent, Israel as a nation over every other nation. But you also see Pilate in the story was probably hoping that one day we get out of probation and receive promotion instead. Right? One day we no longer be um, a bad example to the Jews or a bad example to the Romans. Maybe one day we might even be um, assistant to the Roman emperor. There was a future kingdom to come for Pilate. But as we've also discussed, there was a future kingdom to come for Jesus. There was a kingdom that was coming and Jesus was looking forward to it. But again, this character that we've been ignoring for a while, Barabbas. What, Barab- what, what kingdom was Barabbas looking forward to? Nothing. Death. He was in prison. There was no kingdom for him to consider. And at this point, Pilate comes and he says, Oh, I'm going to, it's my custom to release one prisoner. I mean, it is your custom for me to release one prisoner, right, during the Passover. So do we release Jesus of Nazareth or do we release Barabbas, the murderer? Pilate probably felt he was in full control of the whole situation, the whole time. I mean, I'm going to release this person, I'm going to release him in control. But as we have seen in the text, only one person was in control. Everything was happening according to his own plan. And so if Barabbas was coming into the picture, it means Jesus had Barabbas in mind. It means Jesus was going for Barabbas. And so while Pilate was thinking that just that Barabbas is here because he's a victim, Jesus is here because he's a victim as well, but what we've seen that Jesus was not a victim, Jesus was a volunteer. He said, no one takes my life, no one takes my power, I lay it down. I control this kingdom, I got this. And so, the, and so when we begin to think about it a bit more, have you ever asked yourself what, the, what, what Barabbas means, the name Barabbas? What does it mean? It means the son of a father. The son of a father. And so Pilate, the picture being painted here is that Pilate is going to bring before them Jesus of Nazareth, a son or the son of the father, and Barabbas the mother, a son of a father. We all know how the story ends. We understand that Jesus died in the place of Pilate. I mean, Jesus died in the place of Barabbas. And so actually what was going on was this, that Jesus was taking the place of Barabbas so that Barabbas the mother, who was a son of a father, could become Barabbas the redeemed, a son of the father. And so Jesus was taking, is this idea we call in, in theology, we call it substitutionary atonement. The idea of substitution, it took its place, an atonement, reconciliation. We were all once children of the father. 
but because we rebelled against God's kingship, we lost the kingdom. And Jesus then come as the substitutionary, as a substitutionary atonement lamb, and takes our place, such that God then treats a bunch of Barabbases the way He ought to treat Jesus, because He treated Jesus the way He would have treated Barabbas. We are all Barabbases. We lost our kingdom. And even every day, we keep on losing our kingdom. We keep on making mistakes. We keep on aspiring to reign, aspiring to rule by lashing out in manipulation, lashing out by denying the truth, lashing out in violence. But yet, we can always look back to the cross where once and for all time, Jesus took our place so that God himself can smile upon us. And maybe you are here and you are probably feeling, I hear what you are saying and... Um, lost kingdom, regained kingdom, my future kingdom. But I don't feel like the kingdom is being regained in my heart. I might still find it difficult to repent. I still have those sins I'm struggling with. I probably still dislike my husband and hate my wife. Or my kids are getting on my nerves. Or maybe you're here, you're looking out into the world and you're like, I don't see a regaining of the kingdom in the world. There's so much poverty, bad government, bad leadership horrible bosses, incompetent employees. And like, when is all these things going to happen? That, that I can't see the future, I can't see the kingdom being regained. Jesus is saying that there is a kingdom still coming. There is a kingdom still coming. In Revelation chapter 21, I'm going to read it out. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the coming kingdom, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, the king, saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain. Listen, for the old order of things has passed away. And in verse 5, this is where I'm going. He who seated on the throne, who was seated on the throne, Jesus the King said, I am making everything new. Is there sickness in your body and you cannot see the regaining of the kingdom over your physical body? Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus is saying, I am making everything new. Are you having trouble with your finances and you cannot see the kingdom of God being regained over satisfying your physical needs? Jesus is saying, I am making everything new. Are you struggling with bad relationships? Jesus is saying, in the kingdom that is to come, I am making everything new. Are you struggling with addictions? Are you struggling with sin? Jesus says, the old order of things will pass away and I will make everything new. Why? Because he's king over all. Because he's seated on his throne. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. <laughs>